Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Yale's Whitney Humanities Center presents a lecture by Walter Kahn, Carnegie Professor Emeritus of the History of Art at Yale. This first lecture in the 2010 series of Frankie Lectures, The Age of Cathedrals, is entitled Romanesque and Gothic as Biblical Architecture. The period designated in, by the title of this course, The Age of the Cathedrals, broadly speaking, the 11th and the 12th centuries, can be characterized under multiple headings. Revival, as has been done in the classic book of Charles Homer Haskins, The Renaissance of the 12th Century, published in 1927, and more recently by Erwin Panofsky's Renaissance and Renaissances in Western Art of 1960. This was and remains undoubtedly a compelling idea, nurtured by the ideals of reform and rebirth, centered on the recovery of a, golden, uh, of a past golden age, and the view that man's formation in the image of God needed renewal, having been obscured by the effects of time and tribulation. Novelty and departure from past experience is another common trope in describing aspects of the period. The development of Gothic architecture reacting to Romanesque has been described in this way. And it is useful to remind ourselves that the, that the term modern, moderni, to describe certain 12th century authors in contrast to older ones designated as ancients, antiqui, achieved a certain currency at this time. And it remains one of the polarities by which we characterize our own experience of the world. I will give some examples of each of these aspects, reserving some concluding remarks for the third of my headings, continuity. Revival embodied in the Romanesque, uh, embodied in the Romanesque term, in the term Romanesque, invented in the 19th century, refers in the main to a perceived connection of building methods after the fateful year 1000 with ancient, with ancient Roman practice. In a rapid way, it is demonstrable in the history of masonry construction and especially the revival of large-scale building in stone. Uh, I make this point and illustrate it with uh, a comparison between this uh, wall, which is that of a, a church in uh, uh, northwestern Spain, that area known as the Asturias, uh, which uh, remained under Latin and Christian uh, control after the Muslim invasions or conquest of the south of the uh, area. Um, it's San Miguel de Lillo overlooking the town of Oviedo, and it was dedicated in 848. And you'll notice that it's built in what we usually call rubble masonry. That is, that the stones are picked up here and there. It looks, it's a dark stone. It looks like a volcanic basalt of some sort. And uh, people uh, just mix a great deal of cement or concrete, and they make up whatever differences in the size of the stones uh, in order to compose the wall. You'll also see uh, just 
below the cornice some blocks that are of a different material. In a sense, anything goes, and you just pick up with, with a shovel more or less what you have and make good uh, whatever problems there are with the cement. Uh, Eros Saarinen in the 50s tried more or less to imitate this kind of uh, effect in the two colleges that he designed at Yale, Stiles, uh, and uh, most colleges. So you get some idea of uh, a sort of medieval or pseudo medieval revival. Now that's, that's, that's the way a good deal of building took place in the very early Middle Ages, along, of course, with a great deal of building in wood, which lasts much less well. And, whoops. I need a lighter touch, I guess. Now, in, uh, in the Romanesque period, or in the very early Romanesque period, uh, masonry took uh, construction it became much more uh, sophisticated uh, and technically adept. And we have an example here on the screen of a tower, or at any rate, the first two stories of the tower, the upper part is missing, from a place that was fairly famous in the Middle Ages, Fleury, in the Loire Valley, that is in western France, and now known better as Saint-Benoît-sur-Loire. It is mentioned, or we think it's mentioned, in the chronicle of the time in which the patron, the abbot of Fleury, uh, is said to have wanted to build a tower that, quote, would be an example of building for all of Gaul. So he had evidently very large ambitions. And uh, this was the result of it. We think uh, that it was built in the middle of the 11th century. Now, if you look at a detail, of uh, this, uh, this monument taken on the one of the lateral sides, you can see that this is a cut and dressed stone. In other words, each of the, block, each of the blocks is very carefully uh, designed, very carefully worked, textured with tools, appropriate. You see that the seams between the stones is in fact very small, so it's a rather careful and technically uh, uh, adept kind of of uh, construction. And when we look merely at this uh, slide, we can also, we have to imagine that along with this revival of building, as the Romans had built their uh, remarkable buildings, uh, there would have been an industry of uh, stone cutting, a discovery of quarries, a, a, a method or methods of transportation probably by way of rivers rather than roads uh, of the stone from the quarry to the site of construction. So there is an entire, if you like, an entire infrastructure of building that stands behind this that we have unfortunately more or less to imagine. The, the funny little mask that you see on one of the stones also alerts us to the fact that this was a time when sculpture was beginning to separate itself from masonry construction. We think that the early Romanesque sculptors were essentially masons who began to specialize, if they were good at it, in sculpture. And in fact, the word sculptor, sculptor in Latin, has an interesting history. It comes more or less to the fore around this time. In other words, before that time, whatever sculpture was done had no 
was done as an aspect of something else. Now we have specialists who do it. Now we can learn a good deal of uh, methods of construction, I think, if we look at building practices that are still uh, around uh, us, uh, namely in uh, third world countries where building uh, methods are still done or were still done until very recently by fairly traditional means. Uh, I was in the 1980s uh, in Istanbul and photographed this particular uh, group of workers at work. They are building a series of barrel walls, that is round arched walls, using in this case uh, an alternation of brick and limestone uh, and especially brick for the archers, uh, this is a lighter material, you can see that they do that by uh, using uh, wooden centering and they can build in this way one particular arch at a time because lumber itself was no doubt expensive and difficult to procure. And they raise the stones by means of a simple pulley onto a rudimentary scaffolding. We have to imagine, in other words, something like that uh, having uh, taken place uh, in the early years of the Romanesque period. Now, uh, with, uh, uh, with uh, these uh, methods, the uh, builders, the Romanesque builders, were eventually able uh, to build very sumptuous and large-scale and ambitious buildings that are still uh, quite remarkable. This is a process that no doubt uh, uh, took a certain amount of time to perfect uh, and uh, we, we, we don't have, of course, the failures which must have been frequent by which people learned how, how to do this. Uh, the, the examples that I'm going to show you in the next four or five slides are, I might say, all of them cathedrals. And I do this with a certain malice of forethought because uh, when we use the word age of the cathedrals, we tend to think of them as the great Gothic cathedrals of the mid-12th and 13th centuries, uh, Chartres Cathedral, Reims, Amiens, and so forth. But there were cathedrals already before that time, and there are Romanesque cathedrals. So, so while the, the term age of the cathedrals makes for a good title for a course or for a book, it's not exactly accurate with regard to uh, what cathedrals were like stylistically. Uh, the second point is that we find cathedrals uh, pretty well uh, increasingly in places outside of the Capetian or the domain of, uh, of the domain that we associate with uh, early Gothic architecture. And uh, in a sense that the, these new buildings, these very ambitious buildings, uh, tended to be established often in towns, newly ambitious and active towns, which itself an aspect of the, the history of this period, but also as part of the spread of the territorial boundaries uh, of Europe, which at that time, that is from the 11th century onward, uh, become much more involved with expansion. This is a well-known historical fact. Uh, and it is uh, a fact sketched very well in a book by uh, Robert Bartlett, a, a, a English or Scottish author in a book called The Making of Europe, where he traces step by step how uh, Latinate Western culture uh, spreads uh, first 
to Ireland or to, to the north in Ireland from England and Scotland uh, to uh, Denmark and southern Sweden, also in the north of course, to central Europe east of the Elbe River to present-day Poland and the Baltic countries in the south and in and southern Spain uh, to southern Spain and Portugal. And after the year 1099, when the Crusaders conquered Jerusalem to the Holy Land itself. Architecture as an expression of political power and identity is not an unfamiliar phenomenon to us. Among its more recent manifestations would be the spread of Western European styles to Africa, to the South Asian continent, and of course America in the wake of colonialism in the 18th and the 19th centuries, or the invasion of the skyscrapers and the mall into the third world in places like Hong Kong or Dubai uh, nowadays. So uh, the, the, the building is building, but it also spreads a certain message. Uh, at the center of the, this new building activity is a cathedral like that of Speyer, which was the burial place, or became the burial place of the German Salian emperors, uh, where their tombs are, are found. A building begun in 1030 and remodeled in 1080, and certainly one of the most ambitious and grandiose of the Romanesque cathedrals. Uh, this is Durham, and now we are in the upper, what was then more or less the upper a frontier of what one would call a civilized world, civilized using that word in the conventional sense of the spread of Latin Christianity. Nowadays, it's just in the upper Midlands. Uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, and, and you can take an overnight train there from London very easily, but then it was really the outer limit. And beyond that, the, the bishop, the count bishops of Durham uh, had also a defensive activities activity against uh, tribal groups further north. Uh, so this is uh, Durham of, uh, of 1093 and uh, following. Uh, this is Pisa, uh, which is also Romanesque, but Romanesque of a different sort. Uh, you get the, picture, the feeling that Romanesque is quite a number of different things, and uh, it's very difficult for art historians to conceptualize under a single heading. Uh, the, uh, the, the building itself, uh, the, the, the church, was begun in 1063 by a man with a Greek-sounding name, Buschetto or Buschetus, and then continued after his death. And uh, uh, you see in the left the beautiful baptistry, which is the, the last of this uh, ensemble, and to the right uh, just a bit of the famous leaning tower that uh, was begun in the 1170s and uh, after a while was observed to, uh, to be leaning, uh, which uh, led the Pisans to try and correct it, uh, but to no avail, although fortunately it still stands today. The, the Pisans had enriched themselves by trade with the East along with the Genoans, so they had become a fairly uh, a successful, very successful maritime a city, and so they evidently had a good deal of, of, of funds in order to build this, this quite remarkable building. Then uh, we are now in Sicily, 
This is the Cathedral of Monreal, uh, not overlooking the city of Palermo in Sicily. And uh, you can see here that this is a, a much uh, more exotic uh, kind of uh, architecture uh, with a great deal of inlay decoration, probably indebted to Islamic elements, uh, Islamic uh, uh, masons. Uh, Sicily was at that time a place where there were both Latins, Greeks, and also uh, Muslims. So it was a very multicultural place. And this is quite well expressed, I think, in this particular image. Then uh, uh, now we are in uh, the Southwest, and this is the place where people went on a pilgrimage uh, to St. James, St. James the Greater, as we call it, whose body rather mysteriously made its way from Palestine uh, to Western Spain, or I should say was believed to do so. Nowadays, the announcers on TV always say allegedly, so I'll say allegedly so, from uh, Palestine in the early Middle Ages. And uh, it became then a, 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 a site for a, a, an active uh, a pilgrimage. And they built then, again, in the beginning in the late 11th century, a, a very large, uh, sumptuous basilica uh, at uh, Santiago, St. James, Santiago de Compostela, in the upper northwest uh, corner of the peninsula. Uh, it's today uh, encased in a very beautiful Baroque uh, skin so that the medieval parts are visible within and also a bit on the uh, north side in, in, one, uh, in the northern transept arm, which uh, you see over here. This is the Puerta de las Platerias, the jeweler's portal, because the, uh, the jewel sellers set up their stands there on the exterior. So uh, uh, that uh, gives it its name. And you can see that it, by now it's, it's covered with a good deal of, of sculpture, some of it rather messy, but very interesting to, uh, to decipher. And finally, in this sequence, uh, you have the Holy Sepulchre, which after the conquest of Jerusalem uh, by the Crusaders, uh, they set about uh, to rebuild the area that was associated with the tomb of Jesus. And that's the tomb that pilgrims still visit today. Uh, they, they built in a kind of uh, Norman, a Southern Norman manner, but again with elements drawn from the local building practices in Syria and in Palestine around that time. This is the, uh, the double doorway. The sculpture that decorated it has made its way into the local museum. Uh, the ladder that you see above there has been there apparently since the Middle Ages. And given the fact that this is a place where Latin, uh, Greek, Armenian, and Ethiopian uh, Christians fight over a great deal, it can't be removed, or no one will permit it to be removed. So it's, it's, uh, that's where it still is. We, we believe, or we hear, that it was dedicated in 1139. Now, focusing on cathedrals, as I have so far done, perhaps, which are no doubt now the most visible sign of the creative outburst I have of this creative outburst of the 11th and 12th centuries, I have left out other types of religious construction, the monasteries of which Saint-Denis, one of the monuments that you will be studying, uh, is 
an outstanding example. But also smaller, though well-built parish churches, which in certain regions can be found even in villages of no more than a few hundred inhabitants at most, in Western France especially, in Burgundy, or in the area around Paris. Symptoms of an ambitious and unprecedented process of evangelization of the countryside. But I have omitted to mention an important and even crucial dimension of building activity in this period, that devoted to civic and defensive purposes, consisting of castles, city fortifications, and what we might broadly call urban infrastructure. For this was a violent age, and security, about which we ourselves worry a great deal, was then a major concern and expense. Here are some examples of uh, uh, Romanesque and Gothic building for secular purposes, which has not survived as well and tends also in our courses to somehow be, tend to be neglected. This is uh, Polignac, which is uh, in central France. It was the seat of a rather uh, rambunctious uh, group of local aristocrats, uh, one of these princely families who spent a good, a good deal of time fighting and uh, fighting especially with the nearby bishops of Le Puy over control of the land and the right to, to mint uh, coins and so on. Uh, you see how this presents itself. It's on a very high platform, like cliff. There's a big tower on uh, there, about 28 meters high, I'm told. And the inhabitants of the place, no doubt the retainers and serfs of the Polignacs, uh, live below. The, the castle itself is in ruins, but the picture gives us, I think, a very good sense of how these places were established and uh, how one lived uh, around them. Then, uh, uh, mentioning urban infrastructure, we know that we have, uh, unfortunately, not as many as we would like, but we have a certain number of private homes built in these growing urban environments. This is uh, the little town uh, really a very large village, I would say, of Cluny uh, in Burgundy, where there was a famous, perhaps the most famous monastery in Christianity. And people uh, around there, merchants mainly, who did business with the abbey, uh, who supplied them with food, uh, who sold them merchandise of various sorts and enriched themselves to a degree, uh, built sumptuous homes in stone. So in Cluny itself, there are roughly a dozen or so uh, Romanesque houses uh, with uh, decoration. You can see that a little bit in the upper uh, floor uh, in the style more or less uh, of the decoration of the church, of the monastic church in uh, Cluny itself across the street. Uh, the same masons were probably employed. Uh, what does a Romanesque house look like? Well, they vary in... Uh, different places. Uh, the, you lived uh, in, in Cluny, you lived upstairs on the, in the Piano Nobile, as the Italians say. Uh, that was the, the living space. And that also is the place where there is the most decoration. Uh, below where the, was the store. Uh, and uh, 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 
attached to the store, it's, it's no longer visible, was is a sort of bench where people could display, where merchants would display their wares, and you go upstairs on the side. So that's an example, one of, of quite a number that survive. Uh, the one next to it on the left has been remodeled to a great extent and is not as authentic looking. Um, of a, a kind of activity which I think is easy to lose sight of when we study this period. Then we can learn a great deal from looking at street signs. Uh, I think a separate lecture, I'm not volunteering my services for that, but uh, a separate lecture could be given uh, uh, to, to study street signs because street signs often remain uh, or record something that happened a long time ago. Even when the street itself or the houses are destroyed, the name of the street will sometimes remain. Now, this is a street on the left bank in Paris, in the fifth arrondissement, as you can see. And it was the place where the parchment makers were active. Uh, the, the parchment makers and the scribes, the people who produced manuscripts uh, and books, uh, mainly for the students of the university, which, as you know, was at that time in a process of rapid growth. And we have many places, for example, where you will find Rue des Juifs, uh, the Jews Street, or Rue de la Juiverie, uh, the uh, streets of the Jews or the Jewish community. You may find it hard to find any traces of this community, tragically, but the street remains and marks the place where they were active. Finally, there was an enlargement and enrichment of the means of pictorial expression with new themes and new means of articulating them designed to address a public well beyond a narrow clerical elite. Sculpture, but painting as well, the latter unfortunately much less well preserved, as well as a new and rapidly developing medium, stained glass, are major components of this investment in the power of images. <clears throat> the doorway of the Abbey of Moissac, with its visionary panorama of the Godhead in the tympanum reliefs and moralizing instructions in the lateral splays, gives the sculpture a pride of place, as sculpture itself became a specialized activity with masters though on the whole anonymous, sometimes proudly signing their works. Here is a detail of the doorpost. This is Massac, and here is a detail, one of the most often studied and most beautiful of the Romanesque statuary, probably depicting a prophet, which is to the side of the doorpost. The door is extremely wide, and unless you have a doorpost, the thing would fall down. So that is, again, a sign perhaps of the ambition of the, these uh, builders. More surprisingly, perhaps, sculptural effigies of prominent men and women among the dead invite this in, invade the sacred spaces of the church and its precincts. And even more startling, carved images of the Virgin and of the saints are made and presented to the veneration of the faithful. Uh, it's, uh, this is no doubt a very long story as to why and when uh, in the West one began to have statuary of sacred personages, which 
in the East were considered to be idolatrous and do seem or, or could seem to infringe on the second commandment about making images of the God and of the saints. Um, but uh, beginning, uh, we think again in the 11th century, this, at least in the West, we begin to have such statuary, sometimes in gold and silver, and then uh, in wood, uh, wood and painted wood is a kind of, of substitute if you can't afford a golden image, if you like a kind of ersatz for something grander. So we have lots of these images. This one is today preserved in the Cloisters Museum, which I hope some of you have visited and might visit as part of this course. The style of it indicates that it was probably carved in burgundy. Uh, it's somewhat under life size. And it's the style of the famous sculptor uh, Gisle Bertus, who carved the doorway of the Cathedral of Autun. Secular and morally ambiguous subjects appear on the margins, as in this uh, dancing figure, dancing or uh, dancing figure or jongleur from a now destroyed church in Bourges. Uh, the reason I hesitate to describe it is that I'm not quite sure you can juggle while dancing. Uh, I have observed on the cross campus in spring some undergraduates doing a juggling, you know, with spins. And I think that you need to, to keep your feet rather steadily on the ground because the ball or whatever you're juggling with will otherwise, you won't be able to, to do it. This, it would appear, is juggling, although the object at the, at the upper left doesn't quite look like a ball. It looks more like a plant. So for the moment, let's, let's call him an entertainer or dancer, possibly dancing, possibly juggling at the same time. Finally, history to whose revival in the 12th century Haskins devoted an entire chapter may be narrated pictorially as in the Bayeux Tapestry, a long embroidered strip recounting the Norman version of the conquest of England. Uh, this may be a good time if I mention that uh, your host, Professor Block, is the author of an excellent recent book on this uh, famous work. Uh, this is uh, just taken uh, to illustrate my point, perhaps the central moment of the story, uh, which you can follow, of course, through the inscription, at which the, uh, the uh, man that the Normans considered to be a usurper, uh, Duke Harold, uh, takes an oath on what looked to be like two uh, reliquaries. The Latin word for oath here is, that is used is sacramentum, which is an extremely solemn word invested with very great religious uh, feeling, and which was, uh, of course, meant uh, to suggest that Harold made a, a genuinely, uh, a, a, a genuine, genuinely treasonous step by swearing allegiance to the Duke of Normandy, William, and then having himself crowned uh, king of England. And this was the event that motivated the uh, invasion of England in 1066 by Duke William. Revivals uh, and what we deem to be novel developments are both more or less radical breaks in the normal flow of history. And I would now like to consider a third aspect of the age of the cathedrals, that of continuity. Continuity. 
While changes in style and subject matter are more likely to interest historians, and art historians especially, the sense of continuity is fostered by religious feeling which sees history as the gradual unfolding of a divine plan, whose earthly protagonist is a people of God. Both Jews and Christians saw themselves as actors in a drama that began at creation and would find its fulfillment with the appearance or reappearance of a messianic ruler or savior that would, that, that would usher in the end of time. Hence, their interest in biblical history, and especially the cultic practices and symbols of ancient Judaism, as these are concretized in the, in the descriptions of the, their architectural settings. The desert tabernacle described in Exodus, the Solomonic temples in Kings and Chronicles, the vision of the sanctuary on the hill in the last chapters of the prophecy of Ezekiel, and the vision of the celestial Jerusalem in the Revelation. These descriptions focus on different kinds of structures. The first two give an extensive attention not only to the setting, but to their sacred furnishings, curtains, and precious vessels, while the latter concern themselves with architectural elements exclusively. In the evocation of these places, a part was economically made to stand for the whole. As in the depictions of the tabernacle vessels, made uh, the depiction of the tabernacle vessels in a Hebrew manuscript of the, the late 13th century, which you see here, you can identify some of the more famous uh, objects of uh, uh, this uh, image or this pair of images facing each other. Uh, the menorah or seven-branched candelabrum is on the upper right. Uh, the, uh, on the, uh, the, in the image on the left, uh, on the right, I should say, uh, the, uh, the uppermost uh, design is that of the Ark of the Covenant with its uh, uh, depiction of, of cherubim. Below is the table of the showbreads. These are all translations of uh, Hebrew and Greek and Latin words, the meaning of which is often not particularly clear. And then you see also all manner of vessels, shovels used for sacrificial purposes, for lighting the menorah, for putting out the light, and so on. Kind of inventory of, of temple elements. Or uh, in the material reconstruction of some of these, uh, 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 including, and rather famously so, the seven-branched candelabrum of, candelabrum of Essen Minster, Essen in the Ruhr district of uh, West Germany, which is the first of a series of such ornaments to find their way into medieval churches. The architectural features, uh, you can see this uh, work made about the year 1000, the area around it is a sort of an evocation of the church at Aachen built by the Emperor Charlemagne and the very monumental and very impressive candelabrum is below following the biblical description or that provided by, the, by Josephus in his Jewish antiquities 
and perhaps as well images like those on the Arch of Titus in Rome that transmitted a certain impression of what this object looked like. Uh, then, uh, perhaps more rarely, we also have depictions of the architecture of the Bible. This is an image or an interpretation of the passage in the Revelation showing the celestial Jerusalem with its uh, uh, 12 gates, each surmounted by a jewel. Uh, one can't help thinking that this, this image has somewhat the exotic quality of jewelry itself. Uh, and it gives, in other words, a kind of rather romantic uh, and nostalgic quality for extremely what, what the painter imagined to be an extremely luxurious building, inspired, no doubt, in this instance, by Islamic architecture. In the 12th century, a heretofore novel effort was made to visualize the often difficult descriptions of biblical architecture based on a new emphasis on the literal meaning of scripture, and perhaps as well a more concrete understanding of what these structures were like based on the fact that as of 1099, the Crusaders' conquest of Jerusalem gave the architecture of the Holy Land a degree of familiarity in the West. The pioneer of these efforts was Richard, a prior of the Parisian Abbey of Saint-Victor from 1162 until his death in 1173. Richard is usually regarded as an author of mystical or contemplative theology, and it is for this qualification that Dante placed him in the paradise of his divine comedy. But he also wrote a literal commentary on the first and final chapters of the prophecy of Ezekiel. And in order to clarify his explanation of this very difficult and often obscure text, he made illustrations an integral part of his demonstration. As he was working, he could look across the Seine River from his monastery, now destroyed, on the left bank, toward the Cathedral of Notre Dame, which was then rising, though not yet complete. He proceeded methodically from a general plan to the different parts of the sanctuary, giving particular attention to the gatehouse on its eastern side, of which he provided a ground plan, a view of the facade, and a lateral elevation. First, the ground plan of the entire complex envisioned by Ezekiel, it, uh, it's described in the Bible as consisting of a square uh, of 500 cubits uh, per side, which makes about 250 meters or so in modern measurements. It was surrounded by walls and uh, accessible by means of gatehouses. Uh, you can see uh, the gatehouse on the east, that's this one over here, Porticus Orientalis, and there are more gatehouses over here. Eventually, you proceeded through uh, several atriums to the Holy of Holies, the Templum over here, uh, surrounded by two buildings that the Bible uh, describes only very sketchily, uh, uh, and then find and the building at the very western end, again, barely mentioned in the scripture. 
the, uh, he gives for the uh, for this gatehouse, the, the portico, uh, several views. First, a ground plan, uh, which uh, tries to uh, to imagine the various elements that Ezekiel described. I should be quoting the text to you in detail, but that would take us too, uh, too long today. Uh, places that are called thalamus, uh, chambers, uh, vestibulum, vestibules, and so on. And he imagines this uh, to be a tower uh, with these chambers and vestibules on either side and a passageway uh, through the middle. He then gives us a, uh, uh, a view of the facade. He imagined it to be a three-story building open at the top uh, with arches in the middle and a doorway, a porticus, uh, at the center, again, flanked by these, uh, these uh, chambers. Uh, and finally, he gives us he gives us a lateral view of this uh, structure. I should mention in passing that uh, architectural historians think that the people who built New Haven uh, in the 17th and 18th centuries and gave us this peculiar plan of nine squares uh, were inspired by the, by the reading of Ezekiel, these uh, Puritan uh, uh, divines. Uh, 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 seem to have taken some inspiration from this. At any rate, this is the, 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 the lateral view. You can see these open chambers at the top with crenellations, and then uh, what looks like a kind of exploded view, an attempt to visualize what these chambers would be like within uh, by uh, making the wall seem uh, transparent. These are arguably the earliest architectural drawings worthy of the name that we possess. And picturing, somewhat ironically I would think, a vision lodged only in the mind of the author. We must assume that he was familiar with such fortified entry entryways which were a common feature of walled enclosures in the growing cities of the time. And he, as the lateral elevation uh, also of his gatehouse also indicates, he was particularly interested in the problem of building on a sloping terrain, a problem well known to builders, medieval or otherwise, which we find famously exemplified in a building uh, that contains both Romanesque and Gothic elements, Mont Saint-Michel, just off the coast of uh, Normandy in the English Channel. Rich's interest in the literal sense of the Bible was shared and influenced, uh, was shared and influenced a second author, Nicholas of Lyra, a Franciscan friar active in Paris who completed in 1331, after some nine years of intensive labor, a commentary much more ambitious in scope in that it takes on not a single book of the Bible, but the entire Old Testament. While Richard's composition enjoyed a fair but modest readership, about 25 manuscript copies from the 12th and the 13th centuries survive, Nicholas Postilla Literalis Super Bibliam was a bestseller, of which several hundred manuscript copies are known, along with numerous editions published after the invention of printing in the middle of the 15th century. 
Nicholas, like Richard, makes use of graphic illustrations in support of his arguments. Though since he was concerned with the entire Bible, drawings or paintings are provided for Ezekiel's vision, but also for other biblical structures like Noah's Ark, the Desert Tabernacle, and the Temple of Solomon with their furnishings. Like others before him, he gives us images of the menorah, seven, uh, the, the seven-branched candelabrum, offering two slightly different versions, respectively based on Jewish and Christian exegesis. I might say we have here in the Weinecke Library two copies of this work, both of them illustrated. This is the earlier one, probably a Parisian manuscript of the mid-13th century. Among the sacred furniture of the Solomonic Temple, he presents several drawings of the bronze basin supported by 12 oxen, taking a particular interest in the way water might be drawn from it. I was wondering perhaps whether he might have wine in mind, but water is what is indicated. The description of this brazen or molten sea, as English translations variously call it, earlier inspired a masterful Flemish bronze caster, Renier of Wy, to make a celebrated baptismal font of Liège. Uh, this is uh, one of the great works of Romanesque bronze casting, and a lecture such as this trying to cover, if you like, the, the range, the great range of subjects and techniques would, of course, have to give uh, attention to the revival of bronze casting. Uh, not an easy thing to be doing uh, on this scale, as you can well imagine. Uh, Rainier, we had obviously no real, uh, didn't quite know what to make of this molten sea, and it seemed that the baptismal font would be a very good use or a good interpretation of what it might have been made for. Working, uh, it's uh, another example like the, like the Essen uh, candelabrum, which you saw earlier, of the, uh, of the attempt to use uh, the precious vessels described in the Bible as a kind of means of identification uh, with the biblical text. Working in the early decades of the 14th century, Nicholas could not fail to take note of the architectural developments of his time. His temple complex has a facade flanked by a pair of towers containing staircases. Uh, you can see these towers here. Uh, he says in the text that the Bible doesn't mention them, but you really can't have a building like that without towers. If there's a fire, you have to be able to get up in the upper floors. So he is imagining what this, uh, an element which is actually not mentioned in, in the scripture. Uh, but at that time, as uh, you know, or will be knowing fairly soon, uh, having two towers, uh, facades, church facades with two towers, became a more or less canonical feature of Gothic architecture in Paris and Northwestern Europe. And uh, Nicholas enthusiastically embraces the striving for ever greater height that characterizes the architecture of the later Middle Ages. I've taken as an example of this, the tower of the Cathedral of Utrecht in Holland. It's a very splendid tower, very slim, as you can see, very tall, 
begun in 1382, a bit after uh, Nicholas, but it will serve as a purpose, having roughly the proportions which you saw in the design just a moment ago. Now, to conclude, both Richard and Nicholas thought of their efforts as a necessary preliminary or foundation for moral and symbolic exegetical edifice, uh, to which their readers probably attached greater value. But it may be of some significance that Richard never carried out such a symbolic reading, and Nicholas did so only in a more summary and abbreviated way in a subsequent work, the much less well-traveled Postilia Moralis. Interpreting biblical architecture in the light of philology and common everyday experience had by the 14th century acquired its own justification, as did the use of graphic illustration not only as ornament or for purposes of fortifying memory, but for factual, demonstrative, or we might be tempted to say evidentiary purposes in the arsenal of persuasion. We may be right to celebrate these developments as significant advances, but in forging the, the tools that made, biblical text, that made the biblical text intelligible, reasonable, and even familiar, visible to the eye and not only to the imagination, they meant to underscore a long and deeply held conviction, the unbroken link, as they saw it, between the present and the biblical past. Thank you. The Frankie Lectures are made possible by the generosity of Richard and Barbara Frankie and are intended to present important topics in the humanities to a wide and general audience. The Spring 2010 series studies the making and meaning of the Middle High Ages through the Gothic Cathedral and the religious, intellectual, and literary culture in and around it, and is organized in conjunction with the Yale College Seminar taught by R. Howard Block, Sterling Professor of French and Chair of the Humanities Program. Walter Kahn spoke on January 19, 2010 at the Whitney Humanities Center.